Welcome to Forecast, the Foreshadow podcast, seeking glimpses of heaven on earth through conversations about people's lives and work. I'm Josh, the editor of Foreshadow and the co-host of Forecast. Foreshadow is a spirituality literary magazine rooted in the Christian faith. Today's episode continues our theme of called forth, vocation, and faith. I speak with author and public speaker Alina Sayer about the intersection between her faith and writing. For her, writing is a gift from God, one that she has the joy and responsibility to use and develop. As I reflected on this conversation later, I thought of Jesus' parable of the talents, in which he calls us to put to use those things that God has entrusted to us. As you will hear, Alina is putting to use her ability to write, not only through self-publishing, public speaking, and other ways, but also through the academic study of theopoetics, which we will hear a little bit about more. Theopoetics is an emerging field that seeks to understand and experience God through poetry, metaphor, story, and song. At the end of the conversation, Alina reads and discusses a new poem that she wrote about her experience during COVID-19 lockdown. Here's my conversation with Alina. Welcome, Alina. Thank you for joining the Forecast podcast. uh, This is our third episode of the season. Excellent. Thank you for having me. To our listeners, uh, Alina Sayer is an award-winning children's fantasy author, as well as a poet. Her children's fantasy books are called The Voyages of the Legend series, and she recently published a book of poetry called Fire by Night, and Foreshadow will be honored to be sharing five of her poems, well, four of her poems from that book and an additional poem. Um, She's also a a blogger, an editor, a public speaker. Um, She's done two TED Talks, which is more than anyone I've known uh, who has uh, more TED Talks than anyone I've known who has done that many. And she's also a teacher and a student at Bethany Theological Seminary. Um, And that is the, the the partner seminary of where I went, which is Earlham School of Religion. Um, and so that's a great connection. And, um, and she's studying theopoetics there. So, um, so Alina, could you please introduce yourself to our listeners and describe your journey as a writer? Oh, a nice uh, light question to begin with. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. I, um, let's see, my journey as a writer, I, um, I say that I started my writing career by chewing on books. (laughs) I was really interested in books from a very young age. I love to read. Um, It wasn't until late elementary school that I started getting interested in in writing as I started to realize how much power stories have to shape the way that we think and the way we feel. Um, And so I started to get curious about it. Um, I was growing up in an evangelical church at the time, and I had a lot of trouble with reconciling the idea that I might be um, gifted as a writer, or I I didn't really have the language for it at the time, but even called um, in a vocational sense to being a writer, um, because I had this kind of limited theology that vocation meant being a pastor or being a missionary, um, and that if God hadn't called me to an explicitly religious career, 
um, then writing certainly didn't count <laughs> in some way. Uh, and I actually wondered, could writing be a distraction from God or, or some form of idolatry that uh, I was putting in front of God? Um, and it wasn't until uh, probably high school that I started to come to grips with the idea that vocation could be more than uh, like a religious career. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I, I didn't discover the quote until later, but I've heard it a few times in the podcasts on this season, um, the Frederick Buechner quote, mm -hmm. uh, that vocation is the place where our deep gladness meets the world's great need. Um, and I, I didn't know the quote at the time, but I came to a theology along those lines that um, God had put this, this desire in me to write this gift um, and to follow it was the best thing I could do to follow God and honor him. Um, and I didn't quite know what that would look like right away, but I decided to study writing in college. I uh, got an English major, and uh, while I was in college, started writing the series that would become the children's fantasy. Okay. Um, and that in itself is a fun journey. I, I always loved to read as a kid, but I never really considered children's literature um, legitimate mm. as, a, as I you know, studied writing. And I one day realized, why not? <laughs> Uh, this was the genre I loved growing up and uh, still love as an adult. And there was nothing um, that made it less legitimate for, mm -hmm. you know, being targeted at a younger audience. And it became this beautiful um, arena to explore the things I thought about God and about life um, mm. through the avenue of this magical world where ships fly in the sky and um, children have the opportunity to change their own destiny. And I grew up on the mm. Lord of the Rings trilogy mm -hmm. and the Chronicles of Narnia. So I really enjoyed inhabiting that world. Um, mm -hmm. And as you know, time has gone by, I've gotten curious to explore other genres as well, hence the poetry. Um, and I'm now a graduate student and I'm exploring a lot more forms of creative nonfiction in my current classes. Okay. So I'm curious to see where those paths will lead me as well. Yes. Um, so kind of an evolving journey. I, I don't know if that even answered the question. <laughs> no, that, that's it. Thank you. Um, and later on, I want to ask uh, about vocation, which you mentioned. Um, and I think that's that'll be the, the, the center of our conversation. But um, first, if we could talk a little more about um, your writing itself. Um, one thing, I, as you were mentioning that, I was just curious. Um, you said that through your um, through your books, you explore God, um, faith in God, and I was just wondering how how does that look? How do you how do you explore God and faith and other um, you know theological questions through children's literature? That is a great question. Um, people often ask me, you know, are the books allegorical? Um, and usually in a in a kind of a cautious way, like will this book poison the minds of my um, public school children mm -hmm. <laughs> in an avenue where, of course, explicitly religious materials not permitted. Um, and I really have found that um, there's there is nothing explicitly religious in it. Um, I've had you know people without a faith background read it and not pick up religious themes at all, which is just how I would like it to be. I don't have any intention to preach at anyone. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that it's impossible for a writer's beliefs and sensibilities not to come through in their writing. And of course, my faith is a big part of who I am. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's interesting to me that as the 
you know, there are four books in the series. And um, as my own faith journey has changed and evolved over time, um, I see that reflected in each of the books with mm. the, the notion of um, God or relationship with the divine becoming this um, bigger, perhaps less uh, concrete <laughs> uh, thing as the series goes on. Um, so I think people who come to the books looking for a sense of God or spirituality will find that um, as an echo of where I'm coming from. And people who are not looking for that will just hopefully enjoy an adventure story. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So it's very much tied to who I am, but um, I've, I really enjoy that sense of um, mystery and mm. fantastical. Uh, mm -hmm. I always enjoyed adventure stories as a kid, but I also I think that helps me as a way into God. Uh, also, as a younger person, um, mm. I remember reading like the stories in Revelation or in the prophet Micah, and you, these, you have these really fantastical seraphim with wings and eyes mm, and yes. wheels and yeah. uh, the, the glittering city built of gems and the tree of everlasting life. And these are just so such vivid images for especially a child and an adolescent to imagine yeah. that um, fantasy with its, you know, stretching the boundaries of what's physically and scientifically possible seems mm -hmm. like a great avenue to explore, you know, what if some of these things were actually, you know, parts of this world, how would that affect a relationship with other people and with um, div the divine? <laughs> yeah. So okay. it, it became a lot of fun to kind of explore that world and um, turn some of those abstract theological concepts into something more concrete mm. in an imaginative way. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So it sounds like you have a lot of fun in your writing. It's, it's, it's a way to explore. Uh, but of course, there's also hard work involved, discipline, I'm sure. And um, in our last episode with uh, that, Will had a conversation with a guy named Julius Obregon Jr. And they were talking about how um, uh, there's discipline is required in pursuing excellence in one's calling, as well as learning from others, from other mentors. And so what are some of your writing disciplines? How, how does that look for you? That's a great question. Um, there is definitely discipline involved and I, I separate um, like a vocation-based passion from a hobby in that uh, a hobby is something you enjoy until it takes work. Um, for instance, I really enjoy photography, um, but I never see myself becoming anything more than an amateur because to me, if I were going to really put in the labor required to become a professional, it would it would not be fun for me anymore. Okay. Um, so I think I think of that as something I do for fun on the side as an amateur. Uh, writing for me is something that I'm still passionate about after I put in the work. <laughs> okay. um, and there's definitely work on both the creative side and the the editorial side. I think. Um, I think of them as kind of two separate hats I wear um, when I'm writing. There's a lot more creativity involved, a lot more um, kind of suspension of judgment. I try to just let the ideas come and mm -hmm. not um, second guess too much. Um, there's a sort of work to that, too. Uh, and I think that's where kind of um, the English major, you know, the study of past literature and the structure mm. of writing um, really helps. Um, but th there's also, you know, a, a playful element to it. And then we switch to the editorial, the editorial hat, and that's a lot more um, 
uh, left brain, so to speak, uh, more analytical. Um, I also moonlight as an editor. So to me, that comes a little more naturally. Uh, but it is very, uh, that's where I think of myself as the reader's advocate. Okay, I played mm -hmm. in my creative mode and came up with these ideas. Now let's filter through and see what's actually good or um, what might need to be cut in service of a readable manuscript um, that mm -hmm. won't bore the reader to death. So um, that is probably the longest stage of <laughs> the process. I have a, a book project in the works that is taking forever because I'm still sifting through how to make it the best um, the best thing for readers, not just um, self-indulgent in writing about what's interesting to me, <laughs> okay. um, but also, you know, what will be perhaps tapped into some sort of a universal experience, um, something that would benefit um, or entertain the reader on the other end. <laughs> right. So, so you're, you're saying the editing process is what takes longer than writing itself. Sometimes um, I it can it can vary based yeah, on okay. the book, uh, but I do find that it certainly needs more rounds of editing than of writing, mm, um, okay. and thinking on anything from you know the story, the concept needs changing all the way down to let's tweak the commas and the periods, and mm -hmm. um, there are many many levels of editing that may need to be done on a manuscript before it's uh, finished. <laughs> right. So that can take quite some time, especially because I I do other work during the day. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so yeah, I know a lot of writers have to have a structured time to write if they do other work. And if you're a student as well, um, I'm sure you can't, you know, you have to be quite disciplined in that regard. Um, yeah, so, so, so it sounds, sounds like if writing isn't what you do full time, you have to, you really have to carve out that time. And, and, and it must be something that you have to enjoy doing then because most people don't do something in their free time unless they have enjoyed doing it. And so that makes me think that we also talked about discernment um, in, in a previous episodes and how do we discern callings? And so that suggests to me that um, what you said earlier about how um, you, you still enjoy writing even after putting work into it, maybe that's, a, I wonder if that's a clue for people that that could mean that one has a calling to something, or at least one has a, a gift at something if if they enjoy doing it even after um, even after there's a lot of work and discipline involved. That was really interesting to hear. And, um, they, and so we also said that uh, it's important to learn from others and other mentors. Um, and so writing though is, is a quite a solitary work. So do you learn from other people? And if so, what does that look like? Oh, so much. I would never write any of the things, I've never, would never have written any of the things that I have written um, without the input of so many mentors over the years. Um, I think about, um, as an adolescent, I did um, speech and debate as my extracurricular, and um, my speech coach at the time encouraged me to um, lean into the events where I would write my own material. Um, she saw a spark in me and challenged me mm -hmm. to go after that, and I think that um, encouraged me to uh, take it a little more seriously and explore that. I think as a teen, you're figuring out who you are and what you, <laughs> what, what you're good at. And, and that was a, a good indicator for me. Um, of course, I've learned a lot from, I, I think of them as friends, but they're people I've read in books, <laughs> uh, fiction and nonfiction, um, you know, religious and non-religious over the years. Um, I think about 
many of the authors I've read as my mentors. Um, of course, I've had great teachers and professors over the years and um, other friends who are writers. I really admire some of their work. Um, people in other artistic disciplines beyond just writing. I'm very inspired by the visual arts and music, even though I myself do not venture into <laughs> those realms as a creator. Um, so it's certainly, while the writing process often takes place in a solitary space, um, becoming a writer is certainly not a solitary endeavor. Um, and even, you know, non-writers in my life, without their encouragement and support, I probably have given up a long time ago. Um, so my family and friends are, are huge sources of support um, through that. Okay. Yes. And, and you mentioned um, Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis, and, um, and, they, and I'm sure there are other Christians who, have, who wrote that have also um, shaped you. I'd be curious to know how they've influenced you, not so much in the writing itself, although that would be interesting, but in the context of this conversation more, how their faith and their writing interacted. Um, how has that influenced you as you are um, uh, a Christian who writes as well? That's a terrific question. I, I think of uh, Tolkien, you know, was I had him read aloud to me the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy when I was too young to read it for myself and uh, have been reading it ever since. And mm -hmm. as a teen, especially when I was sorting through this notion of being gifted at something that wasn't a traditionally religious path, um, I I found myself returning to that story as a, um, a model, knowing that Tolkien did have a Christian faith, um, who he never, to my knowledge, wrote about it explicitly, um, but I, I found myself very spiritually encouraged and mm. uh, guided by the story of Frodo and the Rings of Power and <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, just this, this motif of the quest and the, um, the sacrifice that goes into um, this this overarching mission and the friends who keep him going and the the people mm -hmm. who were long before him who paved the way for him to accomplish his quest and I started to ask myself you know if if I could be so spiritually encouraged and guided by this story that has little to no explicitly religious material in it who's to say that you know my calling couldn't be something similar to to write what comes out of me as a person of faith, um, whether or not that material is explicitly religious. Mm -hmm. um, so I was, yeah, very inspired by the way I, I interpreted Tolkien's faith as stamping itself upon his writing without being, you know, uh, uh, didactic or you know, in, in their mm -hmm. face. Yes. Um, Lewis was definitely more comfortable being um, explicit about his faith, but yeah. I really admired um, the way that he wrote in multiple genres, something mm -hmm. I still still strive for mm -hmm. in some of them being more, you know, explicitly teaching based um, yeah. nonfiction and others being more imaginative and um, cyclical. So uh, yeah, definitely interesting to watch different writers handle it that way. Certainly those were not the only two, and I'm certain that I've been inspired by writers who would not have claimed a Christian faith as well. You know, I think mm -hmm. about um, people like um, uh, different non-Jewish uh, leaders in the Old Testament who were used by God to accomplish God's purposes. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't think that um, only writers with a yes. Christian faith can be mentors and teachers um, or instruments of God. So I, I certainly 
gained a lot from from many different writers um, and and continue to every time I read a book it changes me in some way <laughs> mm -hmm. thank you yeah I'm wondering if you I'm wondering if you can give an example in your writing of your in your uh, children's literature of um, something that you hope that will uh, impart to others that element of um, uh, hope or inspiration that you that you received when you're reading some of these authors that you've mentioned? Yeah, there's a there's a scene that's really powerful to me. It's from the third book. Um, so my, as I mentioned, my own spiritual journey has, you know, evolved and changed over the years. And what I believed as I was writing book one may or may not match what I, you know, was espousing in book three and four. Mm -hmm. um, and in book three, there's a, a scene where, um, you know, this, uh, without getting too bogged down in background, there's, uh, you know, a group of um, basically refugees and exiles who are uh, afraid that they're being gradually stamped out and eliminated, and that um, they're, they're abandoned by um, kind of the divinity godlike figure in the, in the story. Um, and our main character, Ellie, who's a, a young girl, um, gets this vision of um, new music that's coming from the the godlike character, um, and it's hmm. at first considered kind of um, hushed hushed up by the rest of the group. This is you know heretical or blaspheming that we already have all the music that we have gotten hmm. um, from this god character, and uh, it's up to her to um, believe that you know new music can still come, um, mm -hmm. that God is still speaking, <laughs> right. um, so to speak. And I think that's been uh, something that's significant in my own spiritual journey, the idea that, um, that God continues to speak and, you know, be present and adapt in our world and in our lives. Um, and that it's not, you know, rooted to one fixed point in the past. Um, and of course, I'm sure people uh, interpret that scene in a number of different ways as they should, since it's fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, but to me that that scene was, um, emotional and powerful as I got a chance to write about the idea that, um, you know, God is, is freshly at work in a world that has ever-evolving needs and in, you know, perhaps unlikely speakers. Uh, you know, a 13-year-old girl has trouble making herself heard in this assembly of older people um, and, you know, patriarchs, and, um, but she has this, this message that she feels is important to share um, for, to give the others, you know, hope in a sense that they're not um, abandoned and they're not done in the world. So that's a personal favorite yeah. <laughs> scene of mine. <laughs> I, wow! Yes, yes, that can that that sounds really inspiring, and um, and I think um, that can that teaches so much. I think it teaches so much about to, to, and it can be inspiring for people who feel that they are um, not listened to or um, who who are shunned by others to to empower them that um, God can be move, working through them. Um, just as anyone else. Absolutely. So you've 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 spoken a little bit about your um, your faith, your journey of faith, and and I and I get a sense of um, in a in a general way of of your faith. But I was wondering if you could say a little bit more. You're now studying theopoetics at um, Bethany uh, Theological Seminary, which is a a, um, a Church of the Brethren um, seminary. Um, so, and you mentioned that you were an evangelical. I'm not sure if you are still, but you, you in high, uh, you, as a child or in high school, you were evangelical. So, 
um, how how has that journey kind of evolved? <laughs> um, just kind of parallel with the evolution of your of your books, I guess it can be reflected in there. And um, so we'll, maybe we'll start with that question. Absolutely, that's you've hit on something very essential. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I I have kind of an odd. Um, ecumenical story. <laughs> I uh, definitely grew up evangelical um, and um, very much, you know, very deeply involved, you know, church on Sunday, Bible study on Wednesday, <laughs> the whole thing, um, you know, a Christian family. And um, I went to college at a uh, free Methodist university, so exposed to something from a different point of view. And um, it's it's been kind of a convoluted process, but I've you know visited a number of different churches and felt like I've gained something from each of them. Um, you know, went through kind of what I'd consider a um, crisis of faith or perhaps self-development <laughs> um, number of years back and um, really examined whether I felt like I could keep faith at all um, and decided that I would either have to um, get rid of faith entirely or change what I held on to. I read a great book about that time called Out of Sorts by Sarah Bessie, um, a writer I just love. <laughs> and um, she talks about the notion of sorting through the, the things that you hold to be essential in your faith. Mm. Um, and it really made me think about, um, you know, what, what I consider essential. Um, I decided that I, I couldn't walk away from God in the sense that um, I didn't feel like it would be uh, intellectually or emotionally honest uh, with the way I view the world to, to try to paint that picture without God. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Jesus is the person of God. And so I began to sort through, you know, what is it that I cannot live without in this faith? And what do I, what am I no longer so sure about? Um, and as anyone who's ever been through that process of deconstruction can attest, it's one of the most terrifying things in the universe, especially when you've been brought up to, um, you know, the evangelical belief that, you know, uh, to not believe in Jesus means to go to hell. And that's <laughs> high stakes for, you know, someone trying to develop their faith. Um, and so, yeah, I, I found myself in sort of this extended time period of, of deconstructing and questioning what was, you know, essential um, and what was, um, you know, optional, perhaps. Um, and I think uh, while it's an ongoing process, I think, uh, I hope that it's made me um, perhaps a little bit less of a know-it-all <laughs> um, about spirituality. There are are a few things I feel sure of, but they can be counted on one hand. <laughs> and the rest, I may have my ideas, I may have my opinions, but they're opinions at best. And I think that's made it harder for me to um, pass judgment on someone who may approach the issue from a different standpoint. It's made me realize that um, everything we believe theologically and spiritually comes from personal experience at the end of the day, whatever we may say about <laughs> theology and the Bible and how as important as those are, um, I think what makes it possible or impossible for us to believe things comes from what we've lived through um, and the people we've interacted with, uh, whether they've been loving or not loving. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a process and it's definitely something I could sit you down and talk your ear off about for 12 years, but... <laughs> Um, I've been really encouraged by a number of writers and speakers along the way. I think they've helped me to um, 
kind of view the process as not heretical and not weird <laughs> to know that others out there have gone through that walk. Um, I'm, you know, in owe a deep debt of gratitude to the late Rachel Held Evans uh, and writers in her her circle. Um, I, I just am a big fan of Barbara Brown Taylor <laughs> and her her thoughts, especially uh, learning to walk in the dark was a was a great read for me um, and probably gave me permission to write some of the poems that appear in my book. <laughs> um, so and of course, um, you know, that was a, a part of why I ended up at uh, Bethany Seminary, um, just to explore, you know, what is this, this fusion of faith and writing? What do these two things have to do with one another and um, I just I love the the environment of a seminary that kind of creates this space of interested um, people who want to talk about theological issues but also the um, just the grace to you know realize people have come here from all different places many walks of life many religious backgrounds um, I've been introduced to Quakerism and the Friends of the Brethren, <laughs> which were, to be honest, completely new to me when I started at the okay. seminary. Mm -hmm. um, I just read a book on, you know, Quaker silence. And I'm, as a person who's an introvert and likes silence to begin with, I'm deeply fascinated. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I love the, uh, the exploration of different denominations and what each of them brings to um, understanding the many facets of, of a God who is beyond our ability to intellectualize and understand. <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of the concept of mystery and yes. approaching God. Yes. Um, Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, yeah, that seems to, that seems to be something that comes, has come through. And I think all of our episodes so far is, is that element of humility when it comes to um, speaking about God and, and realizing that God is a mystery beyond um anything we can know um not to say that you know we can't believe anything or or trust anything that's that that might have been that that's revealed or that we they we hold to be true but but also knowing that um that god is beyond anything that we can absolutely say um, um yeah and i get the sense that in your faith and in your writing you you don't come at it as someone who um, is has a message or has um, is trying to um, kind of pr uh, persuade people with a fixed idea that you, that you have <laughs> before you start writing but it's more mm -hmm. of a um, you, you follow where the story is going or um, and, and see and and try to be faithful to to the story and how it's where it's kind of bringing you um, at least that's what it so that sounds right. Like. And that may have been true of me at one point. I, I think the evangelical background um, leads <laughs> very easily to the idea of, uh, you know, preach the word and uh, make converts. And that was a very tempting uh, direction for me to go, especially um, towards the beginning of my writing journey. Um, and you know, perhaps I still do it un unconsciously, uh, but I, I do think that I've become more appreciative of the story that um, tells a story for its own sake and allows the reader to draw their own conclusions. I've read a number of books that have tried to preach from one angle or another, and they're really just no fun <laughs> um, and often don't do a very good job at preaching either. Um, so I think of the books that have really changed me, and they, a lot of them have been um, a, a true story well told um, and allowed me to inhabit the, the story myself and uh, learn what I would about 
God and about life. So I'm trying to lean more in that direction <laughs> myself um, and just allow the reader to, to find themselves in the story. And so, and so we'll go now into talking more about vocation. Um, and at the beginning, you mentioned that uh, when I think it, when you were in high school, you you started questioning some of the um, teachings of the evangelical church with regard to calling and how um, calling is limited to just being a pastor or a missionary. And you started to to think that maybe um, writing can be a calling or or it can be a gift that you can use. So. Can you say a little more about that and what led you to, to ask those questions and to eventually believe that writing was a, a calling and, and, and a gift? That's a great question. I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of our theology comes from life experience, um, at least at, at some deep level, whether we admit it or not. Um, and I think that was a case where I knew I had this, you know, this deep, love of writing. I couldn't deny that. And also a deep love for God. And to, to try to reconcile those two things, I, I had to believe like, okay, either they don't go together and God created me with a gift that he doesn't want me to use, which, you know, brings up terrible questions about the goodness and wisdom of such a God, uh, which even in my adolescent years, I was unable to reconcile with this you know, what I saw is a good and positive um, gift mm -hmm. um, or, or God had put that in me to do something with. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I did draw inspiration from others who had followed um, lives that weren't missionaries or pastors <laughs> and who had done a lot of good um, with that. I, I keep coming back to Tolkien and Lewis. I promise I read other books as well, but, <laughs> um, you know, as, well-known Christian Christians who were authors. I, I was inspired by them a lot. Um, so yeah, I, I began to ask those questions, you know, what, what is it? How do I reconcile a good God with, you know, a gift that I don't think, I don't know if this is, this is Christian or not. Um, and I guess I've followed a similar pattern with a number of other theological queries over the years, even, you know, the tradition I was raised with women were not allowed to have speaking parts in worship. Um, and I, you know, was raised to believe that as gospel truth. Uh, and it wasn't until later in life that I began to similarly ask, you know, why would, um, you know, God have given me a gift that involves words? Not that I'm a, you know, love to be on stage in front of people. <laughs> um, but I, I do have things to say. And why would God have given me um, mm -hmm. that <laughs> without wanting yeah. me to use that? Um, and it's, um, 
it's thorny. I know for some people, this is a, you know, an issue of salvific importance, <laughs> um, but it's, it's one where my life has, has kind of led the way. Um, and as time has gone by, I've developed the theology to um, understand why I think, um, you know, I do have something to contribute and a voice to, to use. Um, and I don't think that it's against God's will for me to use that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting blending of, uh, you know, I, I think it's the Methodists who had their four uh, pillars of knowledge from, you know, the Bible and experience and tradition and the fourth one, I can't remember. <laughs> uh, reason, uh, yeah. um, and just pulling in the witness. Thank you. Yes, reason. Pulling in the witness from all of those quadrants and, and realizing, um, you know, I think it attests to the largeness of God that um, all of those pillars matter in understanding him, um, that it's not just one or just the other. Mm -hmm. um, and, and still mystery, <laughs> yes. that there are things that can't be, you know, pinned down like a butterfly to a board, you know, it, it no longer retains the essence of being a butterfly when it's mm. under glass. Yes, yes. I think there's a line from uh, the two towers that's related to that, I think, too. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, I think Gandalf is talking about um, Saruman, but I'll, I'd have to look that up to, to find the quote. Um, I think I know the one you're referring yeah, to. Um, <laughs> getting obsessed with his own knowledge and yes. uh, ability to control things. Yes. I could quote two towers all day long. Uh -huh. <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about um, just some things that you're learning at um, Bethany Theological Seminary that um, maybe something that might um, be, our listeners might find interesting, whether with regard to art or faith or the, um, the, the intersection between the two? Oh my goodness. I, I've just been loving every minute of it. Um, I, I think for starters, it's um, kind of, it was kind of shocking to me that I started, I found this program by searching up um, graduate programs that combine um, theology and creative writing. And there is one <laughs> in the United States, maybe two or three, if you, you know, are squishy about the definitions, but um, there are shockingly few programs that will combine yeah these two fields of study, whereas to me, they seem inextricable. I could, I don't think I could see myself studying one without the other. Um, and so I've really been enjoying being in a community that doesn't even need to ask the question, why are these two subjects in the same program? Um, and whether the classes are more writing focused or more theology focused. Um, I even took a class called science fiction and theology, which was the most fun. Yes, I um, took that as well. <laughs> Oh, so fun. <laughs> um, just getting to seamlessly transition from one field to the other and explore the ways that um, art and uh, imagination make a contribution to our theological understanding of God and vice versa, that, you know, our spiritual experience of God impacts our writing and our, um, our creating. Um, it's so, so delightful to be in not just classes that teach me facts about these, but in a community of people who are asking the same questions and um, bringing their own amazing life experiences to this. Some people come from, well, many different denominations and some from a non-religious background. Uh, and they're, they're putting this to work in all sorts of ways, um, writing, poetry, music, art, <laughs> uh, leadership, community involvement. 
and it's really cool to see how um you know this integrated seamless view of god and writing or art um flows over into a life of integrated living <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that it makes a difference in the world when when we don't compartmentalize ourselves our spiritual selves from our practical creative live in the world selves mm-hmm. and I, I think personally that's how it's supposed to be but mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah would it, wouldn't it be amazing if there were um programs for every or for for many other kind of professions and um vocations like there are like for writing and ministry um absolutely I think there's a, a program called I think science and theology or eco theology mm. and just seeing the those two things put together in a major even though I'm not of a scientific bent myself uh, was very um, joyful to me <laughs> yeah yeah so and another thing that we've been talking about in our previous episodes have been how um, so so you've been talking about the specific vocation of writing for you uh, as as a writer. Um, but then we've also talked about universal aspects of vocation, so, so things that all of us are called to do. Um, for instance, loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Um, so I was wondering how do writing and your and your speaking and the other work that you do um, do those help you to love God and your neighbor? And if so, how? Oh, that's a great question. Um... I think growing up, um, you know, in a very evangelical Bible-based church, I would probably have quoted um, the verse about, you know, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And I think that ethic, uh, I think it's Colossians, um, has kind of infiltrated the way that I approach that, that there isn't necessarily a divide between, um, or or rather that that doing ordinary things in the world can be the practice of loving God. Um, I think sometimes that gets boiled down to be too narrow, like um, just be really good at whatever you do and it's enough. That's that's what loving God through that means. Um, And that may be part of it. I think, you know, there are many dimensions to what that means. I I find a lot of the time what I'm trying to do is learn to see God in different situations. Um, Like I spend part of my time teaching and tutoring and um, sometimes the students are (laughs) frustrating and um, hilarious at other times and I think learning to interact with them um, definitely challenges me to see God in all all sorts of different people Um, you know especially people who try my patience and and just force me to look at the world in different ways Um, they're hilarious little people and um, that that challenges me um, and and makes me laugh. Um, yeah, and I, I think sometimes the very mundane things also challenge me to, you know, be present in the the act of loving God. I, I really love Barbara Brown Taylor's An Altar in the World as she focuses on just the very um, physical, ordinary things as um, paths to appreciating and spending time with God. Um, I just made a big move and I'm spending a lot of time breaking down boxes and washing dishes. And (laughs) that um, I think is is an interesting way to view those tasks as um, ways not just to, you know, glorify God by doing them excellently, though I try to, um, but but to use that as time to be with God and just be um, conscious and aware of God's presence in the moment as I'm 
breaking down another box. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, so it's not, so it sounds like it's not only your writing and um and and teaching and speaking, but it's really trying to use every aspect of your life um to to love God and to love your neighbor too. And yeah. Absolutely. I'm sure that's not what it looks like in practice a lot of the time, but <laughs> that's the the way I'm trying to approach the situation. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I understand that. <laughs> So um, one of the poems that we will be publishing on Foreshadow next, uh, soon, is called Sleepwalker. And I don't believe this is one in the book, is it? Correct. This is a brand new poem. Yes. So that's really great to be able to publish that. And so um, it would be great if you could um, please read that for our listeners. Absolutely. Um, so a little background on this poem. Um, it's called Sleepwalker, and it's a, it's a villanelle. Um, I don't often write structured poems, but I really love this form. Um, some famous ones include uh, One Art by Elizabeth Bishop, um, and it's a form that just sort of circles around a couple of lines and reflects and reflects on the same topic. Um, so I actually wrote this um, from the ex some experiences of living through the COVID-19 pandemic, um, and I think it's interesting to dovetail this with the concept of vocation in the sense that um, we don't always have control over our um, <laughs> our setting, who we're with, um, and and trying to rest important choices of how we live in the midst of um, so much loss of control. Um, so I used the Villanelle form and tried to um, just explore this, this strange time. Um, so I'll read from the top, Sleepwalker. Seems tatter while my body ages, grays. No night or morning, empty months ooze by. My soul sleeps adrift through shoreless days. Babies swell are born outside of public gaze. Eat yams, grow teeth, learn to laugh and cry. Seems tatter while my body ages, grays. Suspended animation is this phase. Time, a lifeless, board-pinned butterfly. My soul sleeps adrift through shoreless days. Push poisoned hugs and smiles six feet away. Blue surgical paper swallows all but eyes. Seams tatter while my body ages, grays. Frozen in our separate amber day by day. For love we sacrifice, at least we try. My soul sleeps adrift through shoreless days. Sun warms my sealed eyelids with its rays. I dream of waking under cloudless skies. Seams tatter while my body ages, grays. My soul sleeps adrift through shoreless days. Thank so you. that's my, <laughs> it was a place of thinking on the, uh, the seeming endlessness of, of trying to live a good life in the midst of um, a challenging time in the world. Mm, yeah. And hearing you read it, I, I, I kind of see the connection between the form of the villanelle and that kind of maybe the mundane repetition of what's going on um, in a time of wilderness, perhaps of when we, where we don't really know um, when lockdown or quarantine will end or, um, or um, yeah, and, and kind of a new, a new situation that people are in. Um, did you, just curious, did you um, choose to write the Villanelle form 
because you wanted to express that sense of um, like uh, kind of mundane repetition, if if I'm characterizing it accurately, or did you, or did that emerge and you, or did you start with just writing the villanelle and then that kind of emerged from that? Oh, good question. I think they sort of, the topic and the form sort of wandered toward each other. <laughs> I've always loved villanelles, um, but I rarely, as I mentioned, rarely attempt a, a shaped poem because they're difficult and difficult to do well. And I don't know if I accomplished it well, but um, I, I did kind of center around that idea of mundane, mundane living and repetition. Um, I remember thinking, you know, this was I actually started working on this poem about a year ago. Um, when it seemed like every every month had been locked down since as long as I could remember. And just that sense of, you know, mundane, endless time, I started to lose track of days and weeks and months. <laughs> um, just that I wanted to capture that sense of just repetition and, um, you know, why, you know, I felt it was important to, you know, go through these rhythms and the villanelle seemed to lend itself to that. And so mm -hmm. I started to try to fit okay. them together yes. in a way that didn't feel uh, didn't feel forced. Yes. So it was definitely a challenging exercise for someone who typically writes in free verse. <laughs> yes. Well, I think it's a great uh, illustration of how the form can really serve the serve the message and um, and to, to illustrate wh what you're trying to express. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. And and yeah, so when I first um, when I first read it, I didn't catch the the COVID um, references until a few few reads later. But um, but I also really uh, uh, just the imagery of um, sleeping and waking, and even though it's kind of a dreary landscape that's portrayed, um, there's a little bit, at least how I interpret it, there's a little bit of hope at the end with the sun warming the sealed eyelids. Right. That, that there's like um, kind of like describe this with like in a visual sense that um, there's a little bit of you know warm colors um, in, a, in a landscape that's usually just gray and dreary so I, I that really that was um, encouraging to read um, but also um, I, I think the the way that the um, the the wandering through the wilderness of of quarantine I think that describes that's just um, described very very effectively too so <laughs> I you. so please uh, to our listeners look look out for that poem as well as four other poems that we'll be publishing um, in over the next weeks or months on on foreshadow how can people find um, more about your work and uh, that you do um, I, I have a website, uh, alinasayer.com, A-L-I-N-A-S-A-Y-R-E, um, and there are links to all of my books on there. I don't blog very much, uh, but occasionally I'll put up a post, uh, usually when there's news to be had um, in, the, in the book world. Um, I do social media from time to time, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and even a little Instagram, um, though I'm becoming more of a tech dinosaur by the day. <laughs> um, and the the books can be found on, they're on Amazon, but they can also usually be found um, through independent booksellers on sites like bookshop.org. Um, so I like to support independent sellers whenever I can. <laughs> yes, yes. And you are yourself a self-published author. And so I that, am, that must, I am. That, that's, um, I, that must take a lot of kind of um yeah that that's amazing that you're able to to do all of that as a self-published <laughs> author i think that's that seems like a lot of challenging work to be able to 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 um kind of get your work out there 
it's a whole different journey. It's definitely been a a fun and interesting challenge for an introvert to put themselves Mm. out there in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, But definitely fun. I I love the opportunity to connect with people who have, you know, read and benefited from the books, um, you know, personally. So sometimes people send me an email, you know, through the internet randomly and, uh, you know, tell me their experience with the book, um, particularly Mm -hmm. the poetry book. Um, Mm. I've had some really interesting notes come in from people who say, you know, this poem really spoke to, you know, X, Y, Z event that I've been through. And it may be something that I myself have never been through. Um, But I'm really amazed by the power of of poetry as this really concentrated abstract form um, to, you know, bridge these divides and speak to people in Mm experiences that I've never even, um, never been through. Uh, (laughs) so it's very, very cool. And I love hearing from, you know, people who have stories to share. Wow. Yes. That must be great. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Alina, for taking the time to share your your life with us. And, um, and so, yeah, it's been a, it's been a good, it's been great to learn from you and what your experiences and, um, to hear and to just to hear how you are, um, living out your faith and your writing um, and, and how those two intersect in, in this journey that, that you're on. And <laughs> that we all muddle through. <laughs> yes. Um, Thank yes, you so uh, much for having me. Yes. So um, with best wishes in your, in your studies and in your writing and in your speaking and in the work that you're doing. So thank you very thank much. Thank you. Likewise. And we look forward to reading more of your work on Foreshadow and beyond. Exciting. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing it go up. <laughs> Great. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to look out for more of Alina's writing on Foreshadow in weeks to come. We plan to publish her poem, Sleepwalker, next Monday. You'll be able to find it at foreshadowmagazine.com, where you can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with someone you think would appreciate it. We'd love to hear from you. So get in touch by emailing us at foreshadowmagazine at gmail.com. In a future episode, my co-host Will and I look forward to discussing your feedback. You can also reach out on various social media platforms. Thanks for listening. That's the forecast for today.